I'm Dee Ford uh, from the Medical University of South Carolina. Um, I'll uh, let my colleagues introduce themselves as we kind of rotate through our presentation. Um, so this was a title, uh, Telehealth Center of Excellence, uh, Case Use for Future Deployment. And so, um, as you heard from Mike Adcock from the University of Mississippi, the federal government um, this year recognized two academic medical centers as being telehealth centers of excellence. Um, and the Medical University of South Carolina and Mississippi were those two centers. Um, the uh, Health Resources and Services Administration, for those of you who may not be familiar with that entity, is a federal agency with a very long track record of funding different telehealth initiatives, in particular with the idea of how can telehealth better address rural health needs. And so what um, HRSA required uh, from the applicants for this program were that you had telehealth expertise, that you had demonstrated financially sustainable models, and that you had service to rural and underserved communities. And so just by way of background about our programs in Charleston, as far as um, telehealth expertise goes, this was a quote directly from the application instructions. Um, high volume, lots of breadth and depth were required. And when we sort of map out the different sites that we have in South Carolina in terms of telehealth sites coming uh, supported by MUSC. Uh, we're there on the, the coast, the kind of bottom uh, portion of the triangle is, is where we're physically located and those are all sites scattered throughout our state. Um, we have 77 unique services. Uh, we have 275 total sites. We're in 40 different counties in the state, which is sort of the majority of places in the state. We have different programs in 40 different hospitals, 126 community clinics, and 92 other sites, which includes 80 schools in South Carolina. In terms of financial sustainability, I know that's been an important topic of conversation. In South Carolina, we don't have, quote, parity, meaning we don't get reimbursed the same for a telehealth service as we would for an in-person service. So we've had to be creative in how we support the different programs and the expansive reach. Um, I wouldn't say creative, never say creative in finance in the same, same phrase, but we've um, done a variety of different things, including direct negotiation with some of the third-party payers, including Medicaid. Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, some things are very high demand and we sell them to different organizations with a subscription fee basically. Uh, some of our programs have a lot of scale and a lot of volume and even though the uh, revenue may be incremental because it's large volume it, it works. And then we've established corporate partnerships of various sorts all to um, ensure that we can maintain sustainable programs. And then as far as service to underserved areas, um, this was also a requirement of the application. And this map uh, shows you the areas of South Carolina that are either fully or partially medically underserved. So you can see pretty much the in entire state would meet those criteria. The larger cities are um, the white areas. And so we're down there on the coast. You see Charleston right here at the very bottom. And then when we sort of mapped out all these different services and programs and sites that we help support, we um, realized that 78% of our services are completely or partially medically underserved areas in South Carolina. So as a telehealth center, our, um, our mission was very grounded in trying to provide access to rural and underserved communities. And so we remain very sort of mission motivated on those goals. Um, so even uh, some years uh, into this endeavor, we, we still stay grounded in that focus. 
So we have two sort of big topics we thought we would spend a bit of time with the people here in the room. Um, and so how we chose our content, I've always loved this cartoon. I'm a physician by background, and one of my medical student teachers showed us this one. available for franchise? <laughs> it's, it's from the New Yorker. It's not my, <laughs> not my artwork. But um, we learned a lot of lessons along the way, many of them the hard way. Um, and so one of the uh, tools that we've identified as being uh, helpful being enable successful telehealth service development is one component of what we'll speak about in a moment. And then finally, the value mandate. It clearly, it's been a term used over and over again this today. It clearly is going to apply to telehealth. Um, and then we'll conclude just with an aspirational vision for the future, at least from our perspective. Um, and that'll sort of wind up the rest of the afternoon. Um, so with that, um, just a couple of objectives. Um, learn how to adapt an information technology implementation framework to telehealth. Discover how to organize a telehealth services portfolio around different value propositions. And then the aspirational vision. So now I'm going to turn it over to Katie. Thank you, Dee. So um, my name is Katie Cristaldi, and um, one of the things that I'm going to spend a little bit of time on today is thinking about um, a, a framework um, for uh, developing telehealth um, programs and really how to roll those out. And that was one of the pain points that we really felt. And um, as you kind of look at these um, first few bullets, uh, just to, to reflect back on, on uh, Dee's comments about the center of excellence, one of the things that we were asked to do in the application was reflect upon the um, barriers to widespread implementation of telehealth. And, and some of those are um, outlined here. And as we both reflected on our own um, uh, experience and um, the literature in this field, um, one of the things that became very evident was that there's really no framework for rapid rollout of telehealth programs. Um, and because of the obligation of our own um, state funding was to really roll rapid growth and rollout of telehealth programs, um, we had experienced a lot of those pitfalls. Um, and uh, it, in, through that experience and, and really reflecting upon this literature and then uh, the work of, of our own administrator looking into what some um, possible frameworks um, might be, we came upon the Information Technology Infrastructure Library, which if you um, have a background in IT, you're probably uh, familiar with. And we really, we tend to think about telehealth as a, a um, healthcare um, or a, a health program offering layered upon a telehealth or a, a technology um, program, this seemed to make a lot of sense. And so we adapted that, the team adapted it really under the um, uh, thought process, processes of, um, of one of our administrators, Sean Valenta, who we're all um, using his name in vain a lot today. Um, and, uh, uh, thought about how the main phases of the ITIL framework could be adapted for um, into a telehealth service framework. And so those phases are listed here. Um, and we came up with this graphic that really puts the service design, the service st strategy at the core within um, service design, transition, operations, rotating around, remembering that there's a continuous quality improvement process. 
Um, and because our, our mission really is um, to use telehealth for efficient, effective care, this all really needed to begin with um, a, a stringent, not screening, but certainly scoring process for thinking about why we would build a telehealth program at all. Um, and that that really needed to add efficiency to the, the system, um, add value, um, and not just replicate care. Um, and so you can see kind of the five state stakeholders outlined here. Um, and when a program goes through this scoring process before it even enters um, the, the uh, cycle, if there's a negative effect on any of these stakeholders, um, it, it really never enters the cycle at all. Um, and uh, uh, we'll kind of step through some of these phases, and you'll see, if you're familiar with the ITIL process, um, highlighted in purple kind of those core components of ITIL that fall within each one of these phases. Um, but obviously, the, the service strategy is really at the core, um, and really make sure that we ask the question, what is the problem being solved, and is telehealth the right solution? Um, then stepping to the design phase, um, this is kind of the rubber meets the road, um, the really thinking through how the, um, the uh, process will take place, um, how the care will be delivered, and then also how we're going to track whether or not this really is adding efficiency. Um, I really, this graphic I think is helpful just to think through um, the coordination of the phases. Um, and in the design phase, it really break, breaks down into four main components, and those carry through into transition, um, and uh, which is really where we're thinking about how can we smoothly take this into go live. And then of course, those phases um, uh, all kind of lead up to, are we meeting the needs of our customers? Like I said, in the in the transition phase, we're really thinking about a smooth transition into go live, getting everyone on board from um, the uh, provider, the patient, but also um, everyone else that's affected um, by the the implementation of the program. Um, service operations, this is once the service has gone live, are we really thinking about addressing um, all of those incidents or unexpected things that might happen? Um, I liked how uh, Mike Adcock from Mississippi today um, said this is really a white glove service and we really want everyone involved, whether it be the patient or the provider or anyone else on the team, to feel like if there is an incident that it's quickly managed. And then, of course, there is this continual quality improvement, and that, that really needs to be built in from the very beginning of this process. So I'm going to pass along to Jimmy now. Hey, everyone. Um, so I guess you can, you can see, um, my name is Jimmy McElligot. I'm a pediatrician, just like Katie. She didn't say that she is that. We forget sometimes. We work on this stuff so much. Um, and I'm the executive medical director for our Center for Telehealth. These two uh, fine young ladies actually run the Center for Excellence, so they do all the data. And, uh, and my job's getting smaller and smaller. But I think you can sort of tell that we, we looked at this audience as an advanced audience, and we wanted to get into some of the some of the stuff that we've been talking about is sort of moving to scale, whole enterprise-wide type telehealth, and trying to turn things, uh, be able to do it um, in a big way. One of the things that we sort of run into that, um, that's sort of my job on the, 
my job becomes as they operationally put things together is to make sure we sort of have a north star and that we're developing services that um, that achieve value. So we're focusing a lot on uh, we've we've shifted our our strategic initiatives to be based core in a core value proposition. So this um, there we go. Did I do something? Anyway, so the. Um, the idea here that I'd like to emphasize quickly is the primary value uh, strategy. So, you know, value is a hard thing to calculate. And value could be you think you'll save lives, you think you'll save money, you think you'll make money, you'll think you do a lot of things. But what we want uh, each service to realize is what are they hanging their hat on? What, what are they going to drive towards? And we want to internally prove it and validate it to ourselves even more so. And so if you tell us you're reducing readmissions, we want to see it because we expect it to not actually be borne out in the data as well as we'd like, and we'd like to work that problem as a continuous quality improvement problem. So just to quickly go through a couple of use cases and to demonstrate what this means, um, Telestroke, I think you all probably know a lot about Telestroke, and you know this is a, a very robust program in South Carolina, as in a lot of places. Um, what we see in some of the value propositions, I'll say what this falls under is hospital support services. And in our state, um, we do get some reimbursement for this, but it's primarily supported because the hospitals will pay for the service. So it's a contracted services that the hospitals see value in. So do they use the service? You can see in the bottom left, yes, our consults have gone way up year over year. Do they get quality out of the service? In the top right there is door to needle time, which is a primary quality metric for, for uh, treating patients well. And we're well above the um, the um, we're well above the national average range of, of mean compliance with that. This is, but with those things, would they still see value in it? Are they going to still continue to pay for the service? And this is maybe their, their primary value proposition, that this hospital that is in the state, um, a partner with ours, has been calling us more and more over time, but look, they transfer less and less. And it's really good to see that data go down, that the more that they interact with us, they actually transfer less. And there is another sort of value case here that goes in maybe to the whole system. At our center, at a coordinary care center, the cost of care is much higher than this hospital. So every patient that doesn't come to us actually saves the system money. This is uh, video connections from specialists to primary care offices here. And when we set this out, what we thought was the primary care doctors are going to be calling us for cardiologists, rheumatologists, all these different things, and they're going to they're call us all the time. But what these consultations largely represent, one, they are calling us more and more. So we, it's a network that is, is alive and well. But they mostly call on registered dietitians and for psychiatry med management. So they're calling for services that are uh, low cost, that don't take up their office very much, don't take their nurse staff very much for telepresenter roles. And even though they have access to 20 plus specialties, they, they really want things that support their primary care mission. Well, this lends us to believe that uh, unless billing uh, is able to support these type of things, and, and I will be looking at other e-consults and other type of things, is that we really need to look at what, what could a primary care office bill for themselves and contract with us for the service? Because it's not extending our service, it's them trying to support their primary mission. So they should be the ones driving in the revenue. And diabetes remote peaking monitoring, you heard tons about that today, but that's a service that would make sense as a value for a primary care office. One of the things that we've seen from this is that the, um, is that 
the remote patient monitoring that they talked about in Mississippi and that we see and that we're seeing around the country is actually not physician driven. It's not the physicians monitoring the, the glucoses and the blood pressures and making decisions. So these primary care offices that are connected here to us, they would have to have their own monitoring nurses. And that's a bit of a problem. They have to change their infrastructure. They, they have to have nurses trained on this and those kind of things. Uh, so it makes a lot more sense for us at the medical center uh, for the region to have a panel of nurses, much like they do in Mississippi. But we would have the primary, and so these offices use our nurses to monitor their patients. We follow their standing orders. So you can see a, a change in the value structure here. We're focusing on what their needs are and creating the service to match their, in, their infrastructure or lack thereof. And this is just to say that not all services are intended to save money. If you know much about school-based care, you know that it's not a great business model, especially in a fee-for-service model, where it's always better to line kids up outside your door in a, in a clinician's office and, and roll them through. It's better for the physician, but it's not better for the kid and the family. We do a lot of school-based health, but we are supported a lot with this from state funding. And we have to demonstrate the value to the state that this is good. So we have to make sure that we are getting underserved children, that we are physically, uh, tangibly reducing health disparities. And so that is what we, we certainly want the program to run in the black as best we can. We certainly want reimbursement. But we are admitting that the purpose of this program is to get to kids that can't get to care. And so we're going to make that our primary value case for that. And so we, what the focus of the program is designed to look at, as you can see, the schools have gone up and up like the other graphs. But this program is focused on uh, high rates of ED, asthma ED admissions in counties. And the, and the South Carolina Department of Education gave us a list of the highest need schools they want us to go after. So we're going after not where the uh, the private payer kids are. We're going after the Medicaid kids because that's our value proposition. And that's my spin on that. Do you want to bring us home? So this will be our um, our last slide. We we haven't. We haven't built this yet. It sounds like Kaiser may have built this. <laughs> but this is sort of our vision for the future um, uh, in terms of how we would hope in 10 years perhaps to present our, our organization. Um, one of the primary activities with our center of excellence portfolio of projects is got a strong infrastructure and research methodology. And um, that includes biomedical informatics and large data. And so a lot of telehealth programs and healthcare in general have in, in, inconceivable volumes of data. And I love big data. I think it's fascinating. And so the sort of the grounding of our aspirational vision is largely around how do we capture data? How do we consume it? How do we create targeted populations that we might be able to benefit with a digital health delivery modality of some sort? And how does that really get us to more precision decision making in healthcare, grounded in a variety of types of large data analytic techniques? Um, we view there in the center box, um, this is sort of the vision of a digital health delivery and discovery institute, if you will. It's all theoretical, at least for us at this point, but grounded in data analytics, right, is the foundation. Um, advancing digital health discovery, digital service development, and ideally, we've talked a lot about disease management, but but the aspiration would be to, to be much more intentional about wellness care, um, because then perhaps you don't have to focus as much on chronic disease management or acute illness, um, which is certainly the most expensive type of care. But in, in all of the 
variety of work I've done when people talk about using doing data-driven decision-making, I, I find that the data analytics part to kind of be easier than what do you do with the results you obtain and how do you get engagement from either the patient or the providers. So that's where the human factor-informed patient interface, I think, is imperative. But I think similarly important are provider-centered decision-making tools and those interfaces being built. Um, and then you see the different there on the far left, or yeah, far left, the different potential sites of service, homes, distant hospitals, et cetera. Um, and then ultimately, all of this hoping, hopefully leading to truly individualized treatment plans, um, precision population health interventions, and then predicting where things are going to go. Um, so with that, I, I'll conclude. Uh, I think we probably have just a minute or two if we want to have some discussion. Um, thank you. So all, all of your centers are fixed, fixed facilities? One, so the grass shows fixed facilities. We have direct-to-patient applications as well, but some of them are schools, some of them are prisons. They're similar to Mississippi, and we're here for that. You know, we, in our state like ours, it's very rural. We kind of go wherever we can. So we have uh, some, so one of the value is institutional facilities. That's a mix, and we have employers as well. But, but in each one of those cases, you're basically deploying a two-way video system. Yeah, I mean, there is a single, yeah, yes. That there's a, those sites, those ones are the classic video-based too. So, so you've got your patients, whether they're rural or whatever, instead of traveling a long distance, right. they're traveling some distance. Yeah, and so some of them are connected with local primary care offices. We do also have regional clinics where we staff them. And so when those offices stopped calling us for the complex specialties and only for the dietitians and things, we said, well, we need a place where we can have a facility and, and uh, do more complex cases without having to drive all the way in. But certainly we have both synchronous and asynchronous patient applications, like smartphone stuff, things like that. Um, we are grounded in, our, um, in meeting the, the geographical um, disparity issues. That's where we were asked to get going, so by its core there. And there's about double that amount of sites with the South Carolina Health Alliance as the other health systems so there's about 400 or so sites in it from the state, include the other systems that we're involved in, and uh, we don't have many counties, so we have a big density of the sites. So uh, uh, as, a, as a patient um, issue distribution, um, what's your, what are your primary drivers? Because you know, when, when, I, when I look at this chart, right. I mean, the thing that jumps out at me up there is chronic disease management and acute <clears throat> intervention. Yeah. Um, so, where? I mean, this is where you want to go, but where are you today? I mean, what's, what's your what's your case profile look like today? I, I think it's skews towards acute illness a lot. Um, Telestroke's one of our banner programs. We have a tele-ICU, um, you know, a number of different ED-based consultative um, modules. Uh, and then I think chronic disease management is also heavily represented in our programs. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. I think the schools is probably the most wellness-focused. Wellness yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, and, and everyone else can reflect a little bit more on this, but, um, as sort of the, the mandate came from the state to um, get care out to patients who couldn't otherwise get care, that um, that immediate need felt like acute 
care. Um, and, and certainly in the school-based program, which I'm the most familiar with, that's what it felt like. But then when you thought about how to best grow the program and make the best value case, it's certainly not in acute care management, certainly of children, but in chronic disease management, and then um, taking a step back further and keeping those children healthy from the beginning. And so I think that's sort of most of our programs have moved into those spaces, even telestroke then we've thought about, okay, what about rehab and secondary prevention, but then let's move back and think about primary prevention um, and how does that uh, interface with our, um, our uh, diabetes and hypertension remote patient monitoring and, and things like that. So, go for it. It's really all three, and it really, um, I, I think the immediate driver was acute care management because it was really meeting the needs of school nurses. School nurses see 75 to 100 patients a day, um, and uh, in, in many of our rural areas um, where there's no access to pediatric care, when they feel like a child needs a, a level of care above what they can provide, there's no place for that child to go. Um, and so they know that mom and dad aren't coming to pick them up, and maybe the best they're going to do is go to the ER that night. And they're never going to know what happened to the child. They're going to be back in their office the next morning with the same complaint. Um, so the really hooking the school nurses, who are, are, are kind of the, the cornerstone of that program, became acute care management. But then in order to make a good case for this, um, the most common and costly chronic disease of childhood is asthma. So how do we, and, and we can easily intervene in the school setting um, and, and keep kids healthier and get their asthma out of control and hopefully keep them out of the ER. Um, and then there was a, a, a pretty good um, foundation for school wellness and some other uh, programs within our enterprise. Um, and so we um, kind of uh, used school-based telehealth as a way to um, uh, kind of blend those programs, engage uh, schools um, throughout the state, um, and really think about how can we make school a healthier place, how can we make the population healthier, um, if, uh, meet the needs of the schools. Uh, we treat um, ADHD, um, some uh, specialty mental health conditions that the school personnel were really concerned with, um, asthma, which um, kind of provides our mission, and then acute care uh, to, to help the school nurses. Most of our schools do have nurses. There's certainly a school nurse shortage, and um, certainly some of them share nurses, uh, but most of our schools do have nurses.
I mean, like you've heard a lot of talk today, I mean, value-based care, true value-based care is like where we need, we, we telehealth will live and breathe in, in that space. I think the frustration that I've seen is, and, and it's it's worse in pediatrics, is that, um, and you also heard mention of the sort of, from especially from Kaiser, that they don't have the fee-for-service at all. Most value-based care that where it's at now, that we've experienced, is actually based in fee-for-service. So it's it's not really there, it's all right. But what I would say to sort of finish, because I know we're out of time, is that the for pediatrics, it's going to be hard because kids are resilient. And uh, asthma is an, uh, an indicator condition, but apart from the like the really ill, the really unique special needs kids uh, with cerebral palsy and things like that, apart from that, they if you don't treat them, they don't die and they don't show up in your EDR a lot. It's un really unfortunate, but you will not see a lot of ACOs in pediatrics, and you will not see a lot of those. So it's one of these things that everybody knows is the right thing to do, but to pay a model that Katie is talking about with wellness, chronic disease management, and acute care as almost like an employed population, it, it costs money to pay for kids is what it comes down to. Not a lot, actually, relative to the adults, but um, welcome, showing that you want your kids healthier and, and, and arguing for that value case is really important. Make sense? I would love for you to continue this conversation. We have to move on to the next one. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.